Welcome to the How to Survive a Horror Movie Podcast, where we learn how to survive horror movies and maybe how to survive life. I'm your host, Ryan Stacy, and today we're going to be looking at the end of a trilogy, sort of. Scream 3 from 2001. If you find yourself dealing with an unexpected backstory and a preponderance of exposition, then the sequel rules do not apply, because you are not dealing with a sequel. You are dealing with the concluding chapter of a trilogy. The worst of the Scream movies, but still an alright movie. I am joined by my good friend, Jordan Ryan. Hello. Jordan, how are you doing? Oh, not too bad. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. You know, got to watch Scream 3. Yeah. Which, you know, it's there's better movies you could watch, but there's worse movies you could watch. You know, it's the worst Scream movie, but kind of like Rocky, it's the worst of a bunch of really good movies. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, one of them's got to be the worst. This one's clearly the worst, but it's not a bad movie. Yeah. I'd say I, it's it's fun. No, I agree. I mean, I I think it got a little long towards the end, for uh, sure. But it, I had a good time rewatching it. Yeah, and it's like wrap it up. <laughs> Seriously. So yeah, it's going over Scream Three, one of my favorite movie series. Excited to have you here. We've had a different person reach you the Screamcast, so that's kind of interesting. Well, there you go. Um, so what we're doing with this podcast is we are trying to create a master list of rules on how to survive any and all horror movies. So we'll be going through the plot of this movie beat by beat judging the character's decisions, trying to figure out if we need to add any new rules to the list, and then trying to figure out who did the best job at following the rules and who did the worst job. So we will be spoiling the entire plot of this movie. If you haven't seen Scream 3, I'd, I'd say go watch it. Oh, definitely. Especially if, you, you know, if you've never seen it. The first time is pretty fun. I think that's your best time watching it. Definitely, and it's also it's nice to see a intentional end to a horror trilogy mm-hmm. and not an end that was forced by studios not wanting to fund or people no longer going to see or just going off the rails. Um, I mean, I know we got Scream 4 eventually, but it, it is nice to see how it was intended to end. Yeah. When it does get brought back, it feels natural. So, Well, exactly. That's one of the nice things about the Scream trilogy is it, it feels very intentional. So let's get into Scream 3. So we open with good old Cotton Weary. Back from the previous films, who is now like a star in Hollywood. He has his own talk show. Yeah, he has a talk show and a TV show, it sounded like. Or were those supposed to be the same one? I think they're the same thing. Okay. But it's called 100% Cotton. Solid name. I like the name. He's currently stuck in traffic, and he reveals he's got a cameo in the movie Stab 3, which is coming out soon. And he's not thrilled about it, wants more money. But he he's, gets... also, he's also worried about his reputation. He's worried that showing up in a kind of cheesy horror trilogy will kind of devalue the cotton weary brand it sure. sounded like but might fade some of that cotton and <laughs> god damn it ryan <laughs> anyway <laughs> uh so he ends up getting a phone call from uh some random woman who kind of starts flirting with him cotton flirts back weirdly weirdly of course it's Ghostface yeah. back again the killer reveals he is currently in Cotton's apartment where his girlfriend Christine also is. Basically, he's looking for Sydney. He, he, Ghostface is trying to find Sydney Prescott, and he's like, tell me where Sydney is or I'm going to kill your girlfriend. And Cotton, who's rule number one of surviving a horror movie, is no, realizing you were in a horror movie. Cotton knows he's in a horror movie. Definitely, especially given what he went through in Scream 2. Yep. So he knows. He decides to threaten Ghostface. No! Dumb move, especially when he's in a car. Yep. And 
Ghostface is allegedly, but turned out to be true, next to his girlfriend. Yep. Very, very dumb move on Cotton's end here. Yeah, because immediately Ghostface hangs up the Cotton. What were you expecting? Like, okay, bravado, macho-ness, great, cool. I don't think that's going to work. Save it for when you're looking the dude in the eye. Sure. it's It's a bad move for Cotton. So Ghostface just hangs up, and Cotton just starts speeding through traffic. And, you know, to Cotton's credit, in this montage cutting between Ghostface setting up at the house and Cotton driving through traffic... Cotton makes a lot of right choices. He tries to call his girlfriend. We see uh, in a shot that Ghostface has disconnected the phone lines, mm-hmm. so that's not coming through. He also tries to dial 911, but somehow L.A. is having a huge volume of calls that they didn't prepare for, sure. so he can't get through to the cops. So in Cotton's defense, he is trying yep. on the way. Yeah, no, he, he's trying to get some backup in there, which is rule number 12. So he's attempting to get backup. But, you know, you can only do so much. So I appreciate the attempts. I'll give Cotton credit for those attempts, but he definitely loses points for the bravado and not trying to keep Ghostface on the line to maybe give his girlfriend some extra time. Sure. Christine ends up hearing music come on, and she kind of assumes that Cotton is home, but when she calls out for him, no answer. And she thinks it's, quote, one of his stab games. Why is he doing this? This is fucked up yeah like maybe some sort of therapy or something but this is a red flag christine all i can assume is he likes to dress up as like ghost face or something but i don't even know that because when christine does find the real ghost face she's horrified yeah she doesn't immediately assume that it's cotton yeah we, we never really know exactly what this entails but this is weird it's definitely implied that he, cotton goes out of his way to freak out christine and make her make her think he's gonna kill her and repeatedly, she has told him she does not like this. And As she tells Ghostface now. Yes. She's like, I don't like your stab games. Please stop. So this is on Cotton. This is a little bit of rule number four. Don't be a menace. And that includes in your relationship. If your significant other is telling you to stop doing something, stop doing it. Yeah. Treat your partner with respect, damn it. If, uh, if I played fucked up games like this and my wife said stop it and I didn't, I wouldn't have a wife anymore. Yeah. This so, is Christine, great get away from him. Yeah, Christine, this is a red flag. Like, you should get out of this relationship. <laughs> mood point, though. Yeah, it's mood point. You know, Ghostface attacks her, and she ends up like, kicking him in the face and managing to hide in the office. Yeah, you know, for someone who was completely ambushed just yep. out of nowhere, she, she made some really solid decisions as far as, like you said, attacking... In the face, trying to get behind a closed door since they were in a narrow hallway. Yeah. So she couldn't exactly get past him to get out. Yeah. Or get to a different room that had a window she could sneak out of. There was really nowhere for her to go. Exactly. I, I would argue Christine really didn't have a chance to know she was in a horror movie nope. until Ghostface shows up. Right. Because of Cotton's stab games. If Cotton weren't a menace, she might have caught on a little sooner. Maybe would have had a better chance. And to make things worse, Ghostface has this contraption in this movie which allows him to replicate people's voices perfectly. That is not even technology that exists in 2019, let alone 2001. This isn't real, so he's suddenly using Cotton's voice perfectly. This isn't real, but fine. We're going to go with this because it's a movie. Yeah. Okay, you know, if I heard this, like, I would assume, you know, there's no reason to suspect it's somebody using a voice changer, perfect voice changer. Well, and she doesn't, because once Cotton gets to the house... Yeah. Also, credit to Cotton, he locks and loads the second he gets in the house. Yep. He grabs a fire poker. Yes. More credit to him. He's locked and loaded. He's 
trying to find Ghostface. He ends up in his office that Christine's hiding in, and she immediately starts swiping at him. With a golf club. With a, yeah, with a golf club, trying to knock him out. So yelling, you know, you're crazy, you're crazy, you've snapped. And this is all on Cotton. Yep. If he weren't a menace, none of this would have happened. Yep. I mean, I guess the voice contraption might have thrown some of these events into play regardless, but... It lulled her to a false sense of security a little bit and gave her the wrong person. It gave her the wrong information. Yes. But that's not on her. Exactly. You know, good on Christine. She has a weapon. They both have weapons. Yeah, they both locked and loaded. On paper, they're both doing the right thing. Besides Cotton's whole menace thing, which took place before this movie even started... And it's interesting that... Breaking a rule off camera is what's going to lead to both of these two getting killed. Yes. So she is distracted by Cotton, you know, fairly assuming that he's the killer. Totally fair. He tries to warn her, killer's behind you. She hits him with the golf club. That's (laughs) awesome. And then gets stabbed to death. Yep. So for Christine, I got nothing. I have no rule violation. She did nothing wrong. uh, For the short amount of time she was in a horror movie, she made a lot of really smart decisions. Yeah. uh, Especially with the information she had available to her where she doesn't think a Ghostface killer is back and raring for revenge. She thinks her boyfriend is has snapped. And that's a more likely scenario, honestly. Exactly. So, uh, solid job, Christine. Uh, Bad luck. Some bullshit. Yeah. And what can you do? Sometimes you can do everything right and still not win. As you and I discussed in Friday the 13th, Part yep. 2 with Alice. Yes. And Cotton tries to fight, and he does a decent job, but I would imagine he's got a concussion at this point from the the blow to the head. Definitely. So Ghostface does manage to get the upper hand and stab him to death. And Cotton, well, Cotton made a couple mistakes. Uh, The first one being he acted all macho bravado. There's not really a rule this falls under. Yeah, um, you know, he did a pretty good job once he was in there. It was was really, for Cotton, don't be a menace. Yeah. And then acting all tough with the killer... That's not good. I can't even really think of what we would call that rule. Yeah, it's... You know what? I got this. I got this. Oh, sweet. So I I do have a new rule for us. You gotta put your ego aside. Yeah. Because I think this is... Cotton's ego is macho bravado. He's gotta be the tough guy against this killer when he's not in a position where he can do that. And this didn't necessarily get him and his girlfriend killed, but it didn't help. No, definitely not. If he would have put his ego aside, he might have been able to stall... Maybe get Ghostface to back out of the house, uh, depending on what how well he was able to talk him sure. down. You know, just stall long enough for maybe Christine to spot something off and exactly. protect herself. Getting Ghostface off the phone so quickly and just, just throwing everything in his face like that is not the move when you have no cards. This game of poker, you got no cards. Exactly. So yeah, rule number 31, put your ego aside. You gotta, you gotta let go of like your pride and whatever, and you gotta just handle what you've been given. Definitely. And then his his menacing yeah. just ultimately led to all this. Yes. So we got we got two rule violations for Cotton, but besides that, once he was actually in the thick of things, he did a pretty good job. Yeah, no, he made a lot of smart choices. Yeah. It's unfortunate we lose him here. I like Cotton. I, I like him. I like Leaf Schreiber, just yes. straight up. Yes. So bummer to lose him so early. So we cut to the main titles, and then we get Sidney Prescott, who is living in the middle of goddamn nowhere. In a house with a pretty solid alarm system. Very paranoid. She lives under a different name, Laura. And she works as a call-in person for a women's crisis yeah, center. Yeah, it's like a crisis line where she's able to give women advice on uh, whatever crisis they might be having. The one, the call she gets specifically is that she, uh, the person has an abusive boyfriend. Yeah. And Sydney is able to kind of 
comfort her and let her talk through things. And we don't see it, but presumably Sydney also gave her advice to go to the police and get out of that situation. Sure. So good for her. Yeah, great for Sydney. She's putting her real life experience to uh, to, to a good a good profession and to help others. That's yep. awesome. And she's able to work from home, uh, which is perfect for her new paranoid yes. life. <laughs> I love Sydney Prescott. She's she's just locked up, locked herself up, and got in a security system. I'm not recommending everybody go do this, but I, I wouldn't say don't not do it. <laughs> like, that's great. I, I love the defense game. And as we find out maybe a little later in the movie, she's gone completely off the grid. She's not just oh, yeah. living in the woods. Like, only a couple people seem to know where she is. Yeah, like, a grand, like two people know where she yeah. is. And do we and her father know? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. So then we have Gail. She's giving a speech about journalism. And shout she, out to the dude in the audience who just straight up called her out on her shit. Yeah, for being just a cutthroat reporter, nasty reporter. Yeah. Uh, yeah, good for that dude. You don't have to be a nasty person to be a reporter. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, Gail ends up meeting Detective Mark and Cade, who is played by none other than Patrick Dempsey. Uh, Dr. Dreamboat, I think he's called in Grey's Anatomy. I wouldn't know. I've never watched Grey's Anatomy. I've seen like one episode. <laughs> <laughs> And he kind of fills her in on Cotton's murder. Guess what, Gail? You're in a horror movie. <laughs> yep, and I think Gail recognizes this right away. She doesn't really do much with this information, sure. but there's definitely a, a change in her demeanor as soon as she hears about Cotton's dip murder. Yeah, she kind of throws herself into the, the thick of things. Exactly. Which she does. She's a reporter. It's also Detective Kincaid, his life is a horror movie. Yep, and I was going to bring that up too, is that uh, he's a homicide detective, yeah. so he should always be in a state of... Th- thinking he's in a horror movie scenario. Yeah. Which, you know, that's not a... I, I don't think I could do that job. <laughs> no, no, I couldn't at all. He kind of reveals that there was a photo of Sydney's mother, Maureen Prescott, who was kind of the catalyst for this whole thing. She was her, she was murdered in, in, in the first movie, before the first movie even starts, and that's what kind of starts all this. But a photo of her uh, when she was younger is found on Cotton's body. That throws a twist into everything. Yeah. So Sydney sees a news report on everything. Now she knows Cotton's been murdered. Sydney, you might be in a horror movie. She, I feel like Sydney has uh, kind of had it being in a horror movie in the back of her head since the end of Scream One. I completely even. Uh, but at this point, she knows that the the horror movie is at her front door, so to speak. Yep, a hundred percent. Yeah. She 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 just kind of always assumes she's living one. Yeah. Which hey, you know. Yep, That's... and just the, the threat is tangible now. It's no longer yeah. hypothetical. Yes, agreed completely. God, I love Sydney. She is one of the best final girls. Mm-hmm. So we cut to Sunrise Studios, and the, the, where Stab 3 is in production. We get a whole bunch of security people doing their job, not letting people in. I can relate. Um, <laughs> I'm having some flashbacks. Because I used to I used to do studio security, so yeah, I was definitely having some flashbacks here. So we meet Roman Bridger, who's the director of the movie. Kind of a, it's his first feature film. Yeah, he's uh, he's doing this picture so that he can get funding and approval for his passion project. He he reveals later on. Yeah, and he he's an award winning director. He's done like music videos and stuff. Yeah, so he he's not some nobody completely. And then we have John Milton, uh, producer, who's a very famous producer who's done a ton of horror movies and stuff like that. And they're talking about possibly shutting down the movie, but they don't want to do it. But some of the other producers, executive producers, are like, yeah, we, we should shut this down, probably. Well, especially with two detectives yep. trolling the set. Yep. 
Yeah, we got Detective Kincaid and his partner, who doesn't really matter, but he's in the movie. He's, so. he's in a sizable chunk of the movie for a character that ultimately amounts to nothing. It amounts to nothing. He he could have been a perfect opportunity for a, a death. Totally. Like, that would have been a, a great moment. Like, a, you could have done, like, a seven homage or something like that. Honestly, truth be told, when I watched this movie for the first time, I thought he would be the second killer. That would have been fun. That would have been fun. That would have yeah. been fun. We need a second killer in this movie, I think. That's yeah, no, like, I agree. It's anticlimactic <laughs> that we only have one. Yeah. Spoilers. Spoiler alert. We're just going to spoil this right now. Roman Bridger is the killer. Director Roman Bridger. Yep. But it's just interesting because he is an established director at this point. So he's yeah. kind of playing the long game. A little bit. <laughs> so uh, we introduced to some of the main cast in this movie. We get Tyson, who the token black guy. Yeah. He's playing a Randy fill-in named Ricky, a guy who works at the movie store. He's got, like, probably a cumulative four minutes of screen time. Yeah, he's barely in the movie. He's very smart with his screen time, though. Yeah, he's pretty good with his screen time. We have Angelina, who is this nice girl. It's her first acting role. Very lucky to get the role. Yeah, but they mentioned there was, like, a, a big contest to try and uh, weed out the new actress for Sydney, yep. and Angelina um, won that. Yes. Um, another useless character. Yep, she does basically nothing. But she's definitely there. She, she's a bit of a red herring yeah, later on. You're but supposed to think she's the killer. Ultimately, she's useless. Yeah. Then we have Tom, who plays Deputy Dewey, and he's just kind of a douchey actor. Yeah. Kind of typical. Him. Not much to him either. No. And Sarah, who's played by Jenny McCarthy, the anti-vaxxer. <laughs> yeah. And she has a her character has two scenes in the movie and is the second person to die in the script. Yep. And there's not much to her character either. <laughs> and thus concludes the introduction of our cannon fodder. Yes. Gail arrives on set. She's filming everything. She meets the actress Jennifer, the other main, the only person in the who's actually in the movie to stand out at all. And she's playing Gail. And she is pretty funny trying to pretend to be Gail. She's she's funny, but she's unlikable. Like oh. from her first scene, I just hated this character. You know, I I love to hate her. Like she's an awful person, but I find her entertaining. That's fair. And I kind of wish she lived. I think it would have been fun if she made it to the end. Like this random dumbass. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so Gail and Jennifer do not like each other like instantly. And then we learn Dewey's also working on the movie as a technical advisor. Yeah. And Dewey and Gail kind of had a bad breakup. It's not explained. Um, well, it's it's touched on uh, after the events of Scream 2. Gail helped him uh, kind of heal and get back to normal, but then she just ultimately had to get out of a small town. Yeah, she didn't like living in Wordsboro. Dewey nope. wanted to live in Wordsboro, and she got a gig on 60 Minutes 2. Which I thought, originally, that was Jennifer like throwing shade at whatever program Gail was on just calling it oh you know it's just a, a 60 minutes ripoff no it was actually called 60 minutes too <laughs> okay whatever <laughs> sure i mean if i got hired at 60 minutes too i'd probably go too i just need to point out that they missed a really good opportunity to call it 62 minutes <laughs> yes <laughs> sure <laughs> Okay. So anyway, Dewey and Jennifer are, are, are surprisingly close. I'm actually really surprised how close they are. I thought, you know, maybe she was using him or something. But no, they seem to have yeah, a no, genuine they, friendship. They have a genuine, yeah. Yeah. So it's established Tom doesn't like Gail just to maybe give him a motive, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, at least he has a reason to not like her. He She ran kind of a hit piece. He had a car accident, and Gail started questioning if it was a cover-up for something bigger, if he was drunk, if uh, there was a tire blowout, and if that actually happened. Yeah. Uh, so kind of, 
serves to give a little bit of development to Tom, but also kind of show us, like, hey, Gail's kind of up to her old stuff. Yeah, Gail sucks. John Milton sees Gail's like, no, you're gone, and has her kicked off set. Fair enough. Get the press off set. That's fine. Yeah, smart. And as she's leaving, she runs into Jay and Silent Bob. I hate this cameo. Like, why is this here? I don't know what to do with this. Let's just move on, I guess. (sighs) I like to imagine in the hypothetical situation of this existing in the view skewiverse randy would have ended up working at quick stop that'd have been fun I, i'd rather at, have that at the, at the quick stop video portion of course but sure. <laughs> yeah so sydney talks to her dad and he kind of like worried about her like she's trying to hide her existence and she's like yeah psychos can't find you thank you sydney and i mean she's right she's like totally right that that's the whole catalyst of this movie is that the psycho cannot find her. Yes. So while it's causing problems for other people, she's making a smart choice. The whole point, everything that happens up until Sydney like gets in the main plot of this movie is just trying to draw her out. Yeah. Or the, the killer is also trying to get a hold of Sydney somehow. And what Sydney's doing is working brilliantly. I love this. I I agree with you. I think it might be one of her best decisions in the movie. Maybe not the best, but one of them. It's it's definitely up there. She's learned from past events, which is a a big rule, especially for people who uh, have survived previous sequels. It's it's nice to see that people have learned. And that is rule number 21. So, good for Sydney. Sydney has a dream about her mom, and that's kind of a recurring theme that Sydney sees her mom in this movie. It's weird. It doesn't belong. Cut that out. And it's also super confusing later when... The, when the killer is pretending to be her mom. It, it's weird. Yeah. And that's another thing. How the hell did Ghostface get the mom's voice on his voice changer thingy? Um, I think that might have been implied to have come from the movies she used to be in. Huh. Like, maybe able to get a sample. Of, I don't even know how this fictional technology works. So... Yeah, if you're going to have this fictional technology, you need to, like, establish a little bit more. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I, I can appreciate the idea, but, like, it was kind of half-baked in its execution. A little bit. Ugh. So, Sarah arrives at the production office, and she's there to meet director Roman. He isn't there, but she gets a call from him. They're going on over the script. She doesn't like the script because her character is stupid. They're running lines, but Roman turns into Ghostface, which is funny because he actually is Ghostface. Well, and that's what I was thinking, is they make a whole deal about his cell phone. I think this was just Roman, just straight up. Yeah. No, this was, you know, uh, clever. It's like, it's too obvious that this is Roman. It, it can't be Roman. Yeah, exactly. So Ghostface is in the building apply, uh, implied. And so Sarah's, she's scared. She's, she's like, you know, I'm just going to get the hell out of here. Rule number Ex- 11, get out. Get out! Except she doesn't get out. She uh, gets into a prop closet. Because she sees someone come in the front door. It's just a security guard, but she just sees... Still. You know what? It's fine if you... If I see someone there, I, I might go the other way, too. I, I'm not mad at that move. I get it. I'm a little more annoyed with the security guard at this point, because he shuts all the lights off, and then he hears a noise, clearly. As someone who did this exact job, if I heard someone in... Or it sounds like somebody in an office, I stop shutting all the lights off. Oh, someone's still here working. I'll just leave. Granted, I didn't work for Sunset Studios, which doesn't exist, but come on, dude. Be better. You're giving us a bad name. <laughs> but here's the question. Um, in that scenario, would you actively seek out and try to confirm the person in there, or would no. you just leave? i just leave. I assume it's somebody working in their office. This happened before. Like, middle of the night, I'm wandering a building. Oh, oh, they're so scared to death that someone's in here working, you know. Gotcha. It's, it's hard to get onto studios. And I'm assuming they have tight security at, at this studio. 
it's is, hard the, to get on. This is implied to be a pretty big studio. Yeah. You know, people are doing rounds, they're mostly just checking to make sure none of the, the bathrooms are leaking. You know, no floods or anything like that. Or nobody died in a bathroom or something. You know, just stuff like that. You're just making sure the building isn't burning down. You're not really checking in on people unless there's something blatantly suspicious. Didn't know that. That's that's yeah. good to know. Because I, I was kind of thinking during this part, like, shouldn't the security guard be trying to confirm whoever's in there? See, like... Oh, we're supposed to be locking up here. Come on, get out. Yeah, honestly, whenever I went into the buildings, I had no idea who belonged to where or when, and then we weren't really supposed to know that. It was just like, eh, unless they're doing something crazy, suspicious, leave them alone. They're probably important. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. By that, by by uh, this real-life testimonial, the security <laughs> guard did exactly what he should have. Yep, pretty much. Except uh, for shutting the lights off and yeah, locking the door. Yeah, leave those on. I guess we don't know if it's the type of door that you can lock and then you can still exit because we didn't ever I suppose, see yeah, the, Sarah yeah. go to it. Fair enough. Because, um, you know, I definitely had to lock some doors, but, you know, well, most of them had you could you could still exit the building. Okay, fair so, enough. Don't know enough. So Sarah, she's hiding in the prop room behind ghost face costumes, which is hilarious. I actually really like this. Um, I think it's excessive to have this many ghost face costumes because there's like three racks full of them yep. for one movie. Uh, that that's a bit excessive, but I do like this where Ghostface was hiding in the racks of costumes. I thought it was really clever. Yeah, and then Ghostface does attack, and there's weapons galore. There's knives, there's axes, there's machetes. Unfortunately, they're all props. And this scene is actually hilarious. This is a really good scene. Uh, this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie because you know props to her, props. She's trying. She you know Sarah locks and loads. Unfortunately, none of these weapons are real. <laughs> Props to her. Props to her, literally. <laughs> you broke me. <laughs> uh, but yes, Sarah makes a lot of good choices here. Okay, yes, she made the right choice with thinking someone might be coming, but I still don't like the move of her locking herself in the prop room. Sure. Yeah, you know, don't, maybe don't corner yourself like that. Yeah. But but once once Ghostface has made himself known and she's in fight or flight, she does a good job trying to fight. Yeah, it's not her fault that none of these weapons are real. Yeah. You know, good good attempts. She does hit him with an axe. That isn't real, but if it hadn't real, I think that would have ended the movie right there. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. She would have saved us a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> but Ghostface ends up throwing her through a window and stabbing her to death. So really I don't have really any complaints about what Sarah does in this movie. I don't know. I think she clearly knew this office at least a little bit. Sure. At least enough to know where most of the rooms are. If I were in her position, I might have not gone to the prop room. I would have gone maybe back to that main office that had a lot of windows. You know what? I tried to get out of one of those. She panics a bit. She just she panics. So that's rule number 10. Don't panic. So if anything, I guess we have a rule 10 violation for Sarah. Don't panic. Yeah. Regardless, she does a pretty good job. Gail and Dewey, they go out and get some food and they kind of talk about their relationship why Gale left Dewey yeah. and why Dewey's here. Dewey. Yeah. But Dewey reveals that two months earlier, somebody called the Woodsboro Police Station claiming to be somebody who worked on Stab 3, and they wanted the file on Sydney for movie research. And Woodsboro Police is like, hell no. A little bit later, someone breaks in and trashes the place trying to steal that file. Dewey had already removed it. So somebody's trying to get Sydney. Dewey actually, this is the first instance of many. Dewey does a lot of good things trying to protect Sydney here. He's doing detective work and basically preemptively protecting her. Exactly. But this uh this two months ago instance is where Dewey should know that he's in a horror movie. Yep. Especially given what he's been through with Scream One and Scream Two. He knows this isn't just a prank call. He knows this is another copycat killer looking yep. to mess with Sydney. Yes. 
there's many more psychos other than he's dealt with so far, and any one of them could latch onto this as far as he's concerned. Exactly. So Dewey and Gale, they go see Jennifer, and we meet her bodyguard, Stephen Stone, who's played by Patrick Warburton. He's a douche. Oh, yeah. He's Not Patrick Warburton, Stone is. Yeah. He's a huge douche. For no reason, too. And they tell him, yo, Sarah's been killed. She was the second person to get killed in the movie. Cotton Weary's character was the first one to die in the movie. They're dying in order. And this gets completely forgotten after the scene. Which is a shame, because I actually really like that concept. Yep. Could have led to something really cool with them going through the script, and maybe we would have gotten a bit of a hint at what Stab 3 was supposed to be. Sure. And and just, the series is already so meta. The meta here is that while Stab 3 can't exist because Scream 3 hasn't happened, they'd be happening simultaneously, and, that's and cool. the Stab movies would still relate to the same real-life events yeah. in that way. Yeah, missed opportunity here Huge missed sure. opportunity. I, I like this setup, but they, they don't do anything with it. But Jennifer, in her script, she's next, and she's freaking the fuck out. Understandably so. Yeah. I mean, I, I know one of the rules is to not panic, but I really don't think there's much more you can do when you're... You realize you're next on the list and can't do anything about yeah, it. Yeah, you're at home. You have your bodyguard with you. And if you're going to panic, that's the time. Yeah. But at this point, Jennifer and Steven should both know they're in a horror movie. Really, I would say all of the cast should know they're in a horror movie because while we don't see them get told, all of them know that Sarah has died by this point. Yeah. And they should all know that it's not just a rogue person who wanted to yep. get rid of Cotton. Because that gets mentioned, too, I think by Dewey. Yeah. Or not by Dewey, but by someone that Cotton, you know, he stirs a lot of pots. He makes a lot of enemies. So until one of their own is cut down, there's really no reason for anyone in the cast to think they're in a horror movie. Now they have no excuse. Yeah, especially considering she was killed on studio property. Exactly. So I think every named character in this movie should know they're in a horror movie by now. Without a doubt. So it's revealed Dewey lives in a trailer on Jennifer's property, but he goes against a gun. Rule number five, lock and load. Good job, Dewey. He does, yeah, he locks and loads really early. Yeah. I, I like this move a lot from Dewey. That is really good. Another photo of Marine Prescott was found on Sarah's corpse. The detectives are there investigating. Gail and Dewey show up, and they find out there are three versions of the script. So it's just like, oh, we don't know who's going to die next. And then this is the last we ever hear of this. Yeah, again, a huge missed opportunity from what could have possibly made this one of the better movies in the franchise. For sure, for sure. The detectives talk to Roman about his meeting with Sarah, and he claims he'd never set up a meeting with Sarah, but Sarah's roommate says, like, you know, it was his voice. It's because it was Roman. So the detectives take Roman into custody because he's the obvious suspect and the killer. <laughs> Detective Kincaid borrows Dewey's phone, and this is important because the killer ends up getting... Sydney's phone number off of Dewey's phone and he reveals later the only two people who ever got a hand, their hands on it were Detective Kincaid and Jennifer but it's neither of them so obviously Roman got it from Jennifer at some yeah. point and then Jennifer also reveals that she slept with Roman everybody's sleeping with <laughs> each other in this movie so Sydney ends up getting a call from someone pretending to be her mother it's Ghostface yep and it's on her home phone it's not the office phone so they have the killer note has gotten to Sydney somehow and I actually really like this setup um, you, that you specifically call out. It's on her home phone because they call under the impression that uh, they're calling the crisis line mm-hmm. and Sydney just doesn't notice which line she's picking up. I really like that setup. I thought that was clever. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they make her think she's just doing another crisis call. Nope, it's your mom. And the and uh, Ghostface in this specific instance keeps calling her Laura, but like with increasing emphasis, like, I know that's not your real name. Yeah. I was just waiting for them to just drop, what do I do, Sydney? <laughs> Ghostface tells her to turn on the news. Sydney sees that Stab 3 has been shut down because of another murder. Sydney knows she's 
been called out, and she grabs a gun immediately. Lock and load. Love it. Everyone's locking and loading really early in this movie, and that's great. They've learned from past events. They have. Guns are effective against these killers. <laughs> so back at Jennifer's house, Steven's guarding the perimeter. While Jennifer, Angelina, Tom, and Dewey are all in the house having a rap party because the movie got shut down. Tom asked Angelina out, and she said no. So more motive stuff, I guess. It's kind of lazy. Yeah, it, it like most things in this movie, don't go anywhere. Yeah, it doesn't... Gail ends up arriving at the house, and she hears Dewey and Jennifer kind of smack-talking her. Dewey defends her a little bit, but they are talking some major trash. Yeah. But she gets caught by Steven, who drags her inside. Gail reveals to everybody, Roman was released from prison, or released from the detectives. It was a clone device. that It wasn't Roman's phone. Impossible to trace. Impossible to trace, sure. Gail did some more research, and she discovered Marine was, like, missing for two years. She just left Woodsboro. Nobody knows where she went, and that's where these photos are from, from this missing time in her life. And Dewey realizes that the photos are from the studio, so Marine was at Sunset Studios for some reason. Meanwhile, Steven's out checking Dewey's trailer, and this is just mean. So he gets a phone call from Dewey, and Dewey's like, Hey, yo, Jennifer needs you. Something's happened. Come back inside. If I'm Steven... A bodyguard who's hired to protect Jennifer, I'm like, oh shit, I'm going to go back inside. But no, he's just being a dick to Dewey for no reason. He calls out how Dewey's sister got murdered by Ghostface for no reason. Fucking rude. Yeah, (laughs) to say the least. (laughs) Just like, jeez, dude, you don't need to be this much of a dick about it. Dewey seems like a nice guy. Well, and that's the thing. Like, we see no reason for Stone to hate Dewey this much. He, He steps in and, like... Talks down to him about how he was a shit cop the first time we see him. I guess the second time, technically, but now he's just bringing up his murdered sister for no reason. Fortunately, he wasn't actually talking to Dewey. It was the killer. Pretending to be Dewey. This is the only time I'm glad that that fake voice device exists, yeah, honestly. Yeah, Dewey doesn't need to hear that kind of thing. Steven says he's searching the trailer for killers. He's doing a shit job at it, because the killer's inside. Yup. Um... <laughs> So Steven gets distracted by insulting Dewey. So this is rule number two, constant vigilance. If you're going to search something, fucking search something. Don't get distracted. You search. When we see him searching through, he's like going through drawers and things. And uh, it turns out Ghostface is like hidden in the bedroom portion of Mm -hmm. this trailer, hidden behind a curtain. I don't know. I feel like that's one of the first two places you check when you're searching for killers. Yeah, I check like the bathroom first and then the bedroom. You know, anything where... A as person a, could I'm, fit. Yeah, any, any, uh, like, I'm, I'm working my way through the trailer towards the back, checking every place a person could fit on my way there. Yep. And, you know, get to the bathroom eventually, but keep your eyes open. So, Steven's gonna end up uh, not quite dying here. He's gonna end up walking in front of the door and, like, warning yeah, everybody. Yeah, but, but this is where he dies, yeah. so to speak, and it's really unceremonious. He just gets stabbed once. Yeah, and then a couple hits with a frying pan. Yep. He's down. It's just rule number two, constant vigilance. Exactly. And also, don't be a dick. That's that's just it, too. And I, I, I mean, I don't think that's worth adding a rule for, no. but it's worth noting in, just for life in general. Unofficially, don't be a dick. <laughs> so Dewey tries to call Kincaid, but he gets distracted. And this is kind of a funny scene where uh, he and uh, Gail are rejoined by all the other actors, and they all scare each other. But we have the five. We have Gail, Dewey, Tom, Angelina, and Jennifer. So Stephen appears and then, like, dies immediately. And the power goes out, and everyone goes outside of the pool. And then we have this dumbass sequence of them running back and forth inside and outside the house because they're getting a fax from the killer who's sending them a new script. This is so stupid. 
Okay, so the everything that happens past this is stupid, and every all the characters' reactions to this is stupid. I actually kind of like the sending a new script through the fax machine. Sure. I thought that was pretty original and kind of a nice way to play with them since, you, since you're a predator. It could have been executed much better. Could have, without yes. a doubt. And everything past this point is just the stupidest shit in the movie. So, but I do yeah. like this one portion. So this is, I think, might be the most interesting tactically to talk through what do you do here the power is out in the house you're in you run outside of the pool you stay inside with the lights out and the faxes are coming in what do you do here so backtracking a little bit as soon as they see stone die in the front front yard everyone gets back inside and dewey immediately locks the door so that's i do that too sure as soon as the power goes out and faxes start coming through i get out so i i basically i do what everyone does I don't do what Tom did yep. and go back inside the house because I want to see what what the next fax is. No, no, you want to you want to live. Yes, and you want to get out. Yeah, I agree because clearly the killer wants you to read this script. He wants you inside the house for something. Yep, that smells like a trap to me. Exactly. I so in in this situation, I uh, I actually do what everyone else does and I stay out of the house. Yeah, especially because you were about by the pool. It's an open area. It, there's enough of you. If you stand in a circle, and, you'll see anybody coming. And it's like a, a hillside house. Yeah. So they're pretty safe in the backyard. If you lock that uh that back door, no one can get through without unless they break the door down. So it's a pretty safe place to be. All you got to do is hang out there until the cops arrive. Yep. But nope, nope. Tom's got to see what's next. And this is so stupid. So, first of all, you know, everybody follow Rule 11, get out, except Tom. Tom, this is about, you know, don't fall for this trap. Ugh. But he goes back inside the house to read this fax. And for whatever reason, he can read all of it except the last word perfectly. So he's got to go in the next room and grab a lighter so he can read the last word. <laughs> and basically it reads, uh, the killer is going to grant mercy to one of them. It'll be the person who smells the gas. He lights the lighter. The gas, boom, blows up. Yep, Ghostface uh, cut cut a gas line and got enough gas to fill the house that quickly so that one spark from the lighter was enough to blow up the entire thing. None at all. It's my least favorite part of the movie. It's pretty bad. It's a kind of cool kill. The, the, the lead up to it sucks and is so dumb, but the actual Tom blowing up itself, that's kind of cool. It's certainly the most original kill in the movie. Yes. But man, it could have been executed better. Well, and it's... It relies on a, the characters doing a lot of what you want them to do as opposed to what would be smart to do. Sure. Ultimately, that works because Tom's an idiot. Yeah. But this just reeks of padding the script time and cannon fodder characters to me. Yep. So honestly, for Tom, it's really just get out. He yeah. didn't get out. He, he knew this is the time to get the fuck out of here, and he didn't do it and dies. Also, he's just an idiot. Yeah. Not much he did wrong, except for not staying yeah. out, but also not much he really had the opportunity to do. Yeah, he's a minor character. Com common problem in this movie. Yeah, it's tough to talk about some of these characters. We get, like, almost nothing. Exactly. So, the explosion causes everybody to fall down the hill. Um, they all kind of get separated. And Dewey, he basically you can hear uh, Gale screaming one way and Jennifer screaming the other way and he decides to go after Gale and he sees her down on the road and Ghostface attacks her <laughs> and props for Dewey he takes his goddamn shot and hits Ghostface several times he does we're gonna find out later that Roman was wearing a bulletproof vest like the entire goddamn movie yep it took like five slugs to the vest though that's gonna hurt yeah but no yeah props to Dewey he uh 
He took his shot when it presented itself, and he struck true. Rule number 22. He aimed, and even though Gale was in the line of sight, kind of, he took the shot, and he it, got it. It's really proof that, uh, you know, Stone was talking about how incompetent of a cop he is, and that was kind of a theme over the first two movies, is how he's a bumbling idiot. Dude can shoot. Dude can shoot. He, he couldn't have been that bad of a cop. Yeah, no, he, he throughout this entire movie, he shows nothing but awesome accuracy. Yep. So good, good on Dewey. Ghostface falls down and rolls underneath the car. And Dewey and Gale get down there, and Ghostface has somehow disappeared. Whatever. <laughs> Jennifer shows up and is mad that Dewey's with Gale, so he, she punches him, so Gale punches Jennifer. <laughs> My lawyer liked that. <laughs> as much as I did. <laughs> so good. And then, and then Angelina shows comes in. Suspiciously late. Yep. Red well, herring. Yep, she she that's all she exists for. Yeah, literally red herring. You could you could name her red herring. You ever seen that show, A Pup Named Scooby Doo? I love that show, and I was gonna make the same reference how they had a like a a bully character that the gang knew, literally named Red Herring, and it, like Freddie had a weird hate boner for him. Yeah, exactly. And every episode they're like, ah, oh, Freddie's like, ah, oh, Red Herring did it. It's actually so. I watched that when I was a kid, and I had no idea what a red herring was. Yeah. When I got to high school and was learning about these literary devices, I remembered that immediately, and I loved it. Yes, Dewey and Gale find a third photograph near the car after Ghostface disappears, and it's written on it. It says, "I killed her." So whoever is doing it this time is taking credit for the death of Marine Prescott. But wait a minute, Billy killed Marine Prescott. Oh my god. <laughs> Plot thickens. <laughs> Dewey and Gale, they're, they're back visiting Detective Kincaid. And he was like, I need to get old city now. I will arrest you for obstruction of justice unless you hand over her number. And Dewey's like, oh, fine, I'll give her a call. But, you know, Sydney shows up anyway. She's just... Yeah, kind help. of just deus ex machina Sydney over here. That's eh, fine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's also, I think, a, a kind of good move on Sydney's part because... She knows this killer is looking for her, and he's killing people to draw her out. Mm -hmm. So while she's kind of giving him what she wants, she ultimately makes this play, A, to protect others, but also to protect herself. Yeah. Because she's surrounding herself by people who can help her. People because she can trust, and, you know, her defenses have already been breached with the phone call. Exactly. So kind of a kind of weird that we talk so much about getting out and securing your dwelling and we're giving Sydney props for literally leaving the safety that she's built to put herself in a situation like this. It's interesting because in a lot of these horror movies, they're kind of random targets. They're just happening at the wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. Sydney is the target. Exactly. So when you are the target, sometimes you can't run. You, you just gotta fight. Yep. So she's here now. Sydney didn't know anything about her mom being in Hollywood at all. So they all go to the studio and they run into. Martha Meeks, Randy's little sister, and we get this <laughs> random little aside where they get a tape from Randy basically telling them the rules for this movie, and he's Ra like... Randy predicted that he had a chance at dying in the sequel, so he made a contingency tape in the event that they'd be dealing with a trilogy. And this is why we named the, the this award after Randy Meese. You know, in Scream 1, Randy was a very realistic movie nerd character. Yep. Scream 2, he kind of bordered on the overly fictitious, but was ultimately pretty real. This is just a straight-up fictitious yep. exposition move, but I don't care. I think it's awesome. I'm in for it. I'm here for it. Even though the horror trilogy thing... There isn't too many of those. There isn't. I know what you did last summer, but that the third yeah. one came after Scream 3. You know, I paused there because I was trying to think of a couple to give you an example of, but I don't think I can. Not off the top of my head. I would have to Google them. 
I want to say, isn't Candyman a trilogy? Uh, once again, I'd have to Google that. I'm Boy, not sure. I'm sure they exist, but I can't really think of any. Like, yeah, so, so kind of weird that Randy uh, specifically called out a horror trilogy. He, he, he does admit they're rare, but possible. Yep. And he, he gives us some rules that, the, first of all, it's, it's all going to go back to the beginning. Great. That's, that's true. Survivor, the, the, the killer is going to be superhuman. Which they kind of play with a little bit, but it's just they a, do. I like how they work Roman's bulletproof vest yeah. into the the superhuman killer, almost the Jason or Michael type, where you pump as many rounds into their chest as you can, and they just keep lumbering forward. And we watched "I'll Always Know You Did Last Summer" last week, and that's exactly what happened. So I guess "I'll Always Know You Did Last Summer" retroactively followed these rules, which is hmm. kind of interesting because supernatural killer in that movie. Yeah, and actually, you know what? I'm going to think of it, the Urban Legend Trilogy. They do that with that movie, too. Third. I think I've only seen the first Urban Legend movie. Don't waste your time. <laughs> but yeah, the third one, which has nothing to do with the first two, is also Supernatural. Okay. The main character can die. Not relevant. Past is going to come back to haunt you. So none of these were really rules. No, I think... guidelines. The, the, the point here was to, A, give a call out to Randy, who was a fan-favorite character, well-established. Yep. It was to... I almost think it was to kind of throw... Try and throw you... Because mm-hmm. in Scream 1 and Scream 2, I don't think anyone thought that Sydney was in real danger. This almost seems to me like they were trying to convince you that she might be. Yep. And they do do the fake out later on. Yep. Uh, which I which I like. Yeah. Not a whole lot of relevancy here, really. Even though no. it's nice to see Jimmy Kennedy again. I think uh, I think you said it best when we were watching. You just, as soon as they cut away, just, okay, bye exposition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the sister, Martha, just leaves. It's like, okay, thanks. Okay, bye. <laughs> So Gail splits up from the others and runs into Jennifer. And they Jennifer is like, yo, if people want to kill you, I'm sticking with you. Because if they come after me and I'm with you, they might take you instead, I guess. I mean, kind of a bitch move, but... There's a little bit of logic there, I think. Yeah, there's, there's some logic. And she also points out, like, oh, you know, I'm you, so I, maybe two Gales are better than one. I don't know. I enjoy the two of them together. You like lie. it a lot. Uh, you know, it's fun. I, I like... How they somehow actually work together. I'm glad one of us likes it. <laughs> so they go down to the studio archives where they find Carrie Fisher. I like this cameo. This is a good cameo. Princess Leia playing an actress who almost got the role of Princess Leia proceeds to insult Carrie Fisher for sleeping with George Lucas. What? <laughs> I like this a lot. Uh, it's it it's a much better cameo than Jay and Silent Bob. For sure. Jay and Silent Bob was gratuitous and unnecessary. Uh, the cameo, not the movie. But this is a good cameo. This is a cameo done right. Yes. And Jennifer, well, Gail tries to bribe her with 50 bucks like for information on Marine Prescott. And Carrie Fisher's like, nah. Jennifer gives her a $2,000 ring, gets the information. And it turns out Marine Prescott went under the name of Rena Reynolds while she was in Hollywood. And she worked on three movies, all of which were John Milton films. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, my God. Sydney is in the bathroom, and she... Learns from past events. It's, it's the the bathroom scene all over again. It looks like there's a killer in the bathroom. Unbelievably suspicious. There's Angelina in there with a ghost face costume. So cycling back a little bit, I made a note specifically during this scene. She pulls out mace. Yes. So Sydney is always locked and loaded. Yes. Not necessarily with a lethal weapon, but she's always got something on her to protect against an attack. And I love this. Yeah. She probably wasn't allowed to take the gun on the studio. Huh? Yeah. I don't know how this studio does it. But when I when the studio I worked at, we had metal detectors to block guns from coming on. But but yes, she uh, she finds Angelina in one of the stalls yep. who stole a ghost face mask as a keepsake. 
Sure, I buy it. That happens. I buy it, but the when way. when you don't know who the killer is, and that's kind of a running theme across all of these movies, which this actress should know. Rule number 24, trust no one. Exactly, she should know this. It's really suspect that she chose to steal a ghost face mask. Everybody's a suspect! And thinking of the lore in this movie, Ghostface is explicitly called out as just a generic Halloween costume. Mm-hmm. So, kind of weird she wouldn't choose a more unique keepsake sure. instead of something she could have just bought at a store. Literally anywhere. Yeah, So, but this this ultimately just leads to try and convince us she's the killer. Yep, but I've heard stories of actors stealing souvenirs. Um, oh, yeah, no, so. it's unbelievably common. Yep, but yeah, it's really weird and suspicious. But she ends up like awkwardly leaving and leaving a hairbrush behind. And Sydney tries to give the hairbrush back and follows her out onto a stage. She's back in Woodsboro. And I actually really like this scene, partially because it's just a really well-shot scene of Sydney kind of physically going through memory lane. I think most of what I like about it is that the lighting on set is very reminiscent of Nightmare on Elm Street, which is my favorite slasher of all time. Okay. You know, it really did feel like going back to Woodsboro without actually doing it. Yeah. Which was pretty cool, I gotta say. And so she is in her old bedroom, which has the closet door, just like her original bedroom door did, where you can close the closet yeah. door and block the and, bedroom door. And she hears something that sounds suspicious, and she activates that. So great job on her yeah. right there. She immediately puts up her defenses. She's got her mace. She's ready. Unfortunately, Ghostface is out on the roof and pulls her out the window. Yeah, this, and I, I would call this a failure of constant vigilance. Yeah, um, I, I get that she had her sights on the door, but she should have been checking behind her because she knows her room. She knows there's a window there. Yep. And also, this is not her house. This is a set. It's exactly. a lot easier to get around a set. Exactly. So, yeah, rule number two, Sydney constant vigilance. She gets pulled out the window. She does start fighting. She's calling for help. She's throwing stuff at Ghostface. She runs back into the house, locks the door. This is a set. It's not going <laughs> to yep. do anything. Ghost, this is back inside the set. Yep. Fighting again. Sydney runs upstairs because she's got nowhere else to go. But this this is awesome. She goes through a door, and it's not a real door. It, it's it's a fake door. Basically, it goes out to nothing. There, She's in the room above a bedroom. You know, they, they, just, they just built that to make it look bigger than it is. They don't have to build the whole house. They only have to build what they actually yeah, need. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's part of the... Uh... The exterior that was built without... They didn't need the interior for the movie. Movie so. magic. But she hides out there, holding onto the side of the wall. And when Ghostface opens the door, she grabs him and tosses his ass out the door. This is a great scene. I love this so much. This is clever. And you know, if it weren't for the conveniently placed bed beneath, this probably would have killed Roman. Or seriously broken like his legs or something. Like, yep. oh, I'm down for the count. Exactly. I love this. This is really great. But somehow... She gets into a room with the corpse of her mother in a body bag, but it's actually Ghostface. Yeah. I don't know how this happened, but she, yeah, it, it's weird. Anyway, she jumps out the window, and Dewey and Detective Kincaid... And- well, and actually, Dewey explains that right here. Like, the corpse of her mother is supposed to be, for an earlier mentioned flashback, yeah. they built this Woodsboro set for a flashback scene which I think was going to be the death of her mother. Sure. Uh, so that's where that kind of comes from, because Dewey calls out, like, oh, you weren't supposed to see the house. It was set up for the murder scene. You were never supposed to be here. That type of thing. I don't know how Ghostface got in that coroner's bag so fast. Yeah, no, that, that part makes no sense. But... Makes no sense. 
But hey, City just got the hell out of there and jumped out a window. Yep, so solid move there. So Dewey arrives to, you know, like, comfort her. And then Tyson, who we haven't seen in fucking forever. I forgot about him, honestly. <laughs> Angelina and Kincaid all arrive with suspicious timing. Even though I don't know why they bothered with that with Tyson, because who's Tyson? I don't know, maybe. Could have uh, could have thought he was the killer, maybe. <laughs> Kincaid and Cindy end up going back to the studio, and Gail and Jennifer show up, and they kind of fill Dewey in on everything, and they go see John Milton. So Roman is visiting John, kind of talking about what's going to happen, the movie's shut down. Dewey, Jennifer, and Gail all arrive, and they're kind of accusing him of what's going on. It's revealed that it's Roman's birthday today, and they're having a party at John's house later. Roman's like, yeah, happy fucking birthday to me. (laughs) (laughs) That, that That does... Play into the motivation, though. Yeah, it does. But, you know, you do kind of feel bad for him until you know he's the killer. It's like, oh, everybody forgot his birthday. Everybody's getting murdered. His movie's getting shut down. You know, honestly, I still kind of feel bad for him. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll touch on that later, but... Yeah. He got dealt a bad hand. Very much so. Roman leaves. John admits to knowing Marine, and basically, he's kind of telling the story. He used to throw these wild parties back in the 70s, and they were basically for girls to, like, make impressions on rich and famous people. And heavily implies that, basically, he throw, he'd throw orgies for actresses to try and get parts and roles. And he says something along the lines of, nothing happened to her that she didn't invite one way or the other. That sounds really rapey, John. Yeah, this scene either didn't age well, or it aged perfectly well, given all the Hollywood news we're cough, recording cough, recently. Cough, cough, Weinstein, cough, cough. Yeah. Yeah, this... I think it aged very well, because it kind of like, oh, yeah, this is real. This this happened. It's always been real. It's always been real, and it's not really an open secret anymore. It's just open. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I personally think this aged very well. Like, it's it's more uncomfortable than it used to be, but it's also, like, more powerful than it used to be. It's like, yeah, huh? Yeah, this shit happened. Kincaid and Sydney they kind of bond over how, like, haunted their lives are, and how there's, there's violence everywhere in their lives. And this is, like, one of my... One thing I'm boned about with Scream Force, they didn't bring back Kincaid because yeah. they have chemistry. They do, and I it's almost sh- it's almost implied towards the end that they might be starting a relationship beyond friendship. That's what I was hoping for with like Scream Five, they'd bring him back and they'd yeah. be together. Kincaid goes back to set. Gail, Dewey, and Jennifer they head back. They're on their way back to the precinct, and they get a phone call from Sydney. It's not Sydney. It's Ghostface pretending <laughs> to be Sydney, <laughs> and she says. Yeah, we're on our way, me and Kincaid, we're on our way to John's party. He said he had something to tell me about my mother. Why don't you guys head there? Okay, sure. I don't think this is a good idea. Okay, bye. I'll see you at the party. You know, this kind of gets into uh, what we got into with Christine, where they have no reason to suspect that this isn't Sydney. It's kind of weird, and it's a little out of character, but ultimately they have no reason yeah. not to trust this. Yeah, uh... We can't expect people to know about technology that doesn't exist until they have evidence showing that it exists. Exactly. Which, ugh, is the problem with this movie. Dewey, Gale, and Jennifer all arrive at the party. Roman, Angelina, and Tyson are all there. And Roman tells them, yeah, there's like this secret screening room in here somewhere where they threw wild parties. Let's go find it. Tyson's like, why y'all want to split up and go this, like, Scooby-Doo this shit? Tyson is the voice of reason we deserve. Yeah, he knows the rule. Rule number 19 don't split up, gang. Let's split up and look for clues. Don't be Scooby-Doo here. Just don't don't listen to Mr. Inc. They're wrong about almost everything. Uh, Mr. Inc. is not role models. No, you do not split up and go explore the spooky house when there's a killer on the loose. That's almost verbatim what he says, too. Yeah, but Jennifer and Roman, they go off. Roman, he can do whatever he wants. He's the killer. It's fine. Jennifer goes with. Angelina and Tyson go another way. But here's the thing. Tyson does it still. He does split up. 
And that's what kills me. It's like, you know the rule. Don't do it. I mean, at this point, his options are go with Angelina or sit around alone and be even more of a sitting duck. So and I'll I, forgive that aspect. Uh, Tyson, go home. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> if I'm any of them, I'm, I'm taking a little break from Hollywood at this point. <laughs> uh, and so they all split up. Yeah, this part, it gets confusing here. Roman and Jennifer, they go and find the, the basement. Roman goes down into the basement alone. And Tyson and Angelina, they go upstairs. Tyson's freaked the fuck out. Yeah. Roman is exploring the basement all by himself while Jennifer stays upstairs. Kind of heckling him about how good of a lay she was just really randomly. Yeah, they're just giving each other shit for no reason. That came out of nowhere. Like, okay, whatever, guys. We get it. Hollywood sex. Oh, yeah. Uh, You probably shouldn't burn bridges like that. No, definitely not. Be a little more professional, guys. Dewey and Gail, they're waiting for Sydney, and they're like, dude, she's taking forever. And they come up with the idea, hey, let's redial the last number called. It's coming from the next room in a little closet, and they find the cell phone, they find the voice changer, and they find a ghost face costume. Now they know about the voice changer thing. Dewey, he's got our voices. <laughs> it's a trap. Dewey and Gail split up. Rule number 19. Don't split up, gang. A lot of rule breaking right now. Yeah, a lot of it's going on right now. Dewey gives his gun away to Gail, which, I mean, I get, but don't do that. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't smart for Dewey because he gave up his own weapon, but in the same time, it gave Gale the opportunity to be armed. Sure. So, I almost just call this a wash because Dewey's breaking a rule, but in doing so, he helps Gale uh, follow a rule, so it's just kind of a wash. Yeah, and Dewey's better equipped for a fistfight than Gale is. Yep, I think that might be his mentality, too. Fair enough. I mean, it's fine. It's not the smartest move, but compared to some of Dewey's moves in the past, this is... Trivial. Yeah, it, yeah, that's true. Dewey ends up finding Tyson. Angelina's gone missing. They don't know where she is. And Gail goes into the basement, finds Roman's body, checks for a pulse, doesn't seem to find one, and moves on. But Roman's the killer. What? What? The, the only thing I can think of is that she must have pressed some part of the wrist that didn't give either it didn't give a pulse or it didn't give a strong enough pulse for her to register. All they had to do was cut one shot out of this. Yep. Or or explain later, like, oh yeah, wasn't that a great replica? Like, oh, movie prop. Something. I don't know anything. This makes no sense. Gail does everything right. She, I mean, maybe she doesn't know how to check for a pulse correctly. I don't know what to do here. I don't know what to do. I, it's I, not I, a rule break, but it's a continuity error without a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> rule violation for Wes Craven for not making their movie make sense. Rest in peace, Wes. Like, I miss you. <laughs> um, you could have done better with this one. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Gail ends up finding Jennifer. They go upstairs. They find Angelina. And they tell her what's going on, that uh, Roman's dead. Angelina panics, rule number 10, and runs off, shouting she doesn't want to die with all these second-rate celebrities. And she didn't fuck John Milton to die here. Again, really random call-out about all the Hollywood sex. We get it. I think Wes was trying to tell us something. Yeah, Wes was... We Wes, should we should have listened. We should have listened. Wes was trying to warn us. Oh, you're a good man, Wes Craven. <laughs> so as she's running away, she doesn't pay attention to where she's going. She like looks back and calls back, like, "Hey guys, you should get out of here too." Runs straight into Ghostface and gets stabbed to death. Rule number two: constant vigilance. Rip. Who cares? I don't. Yeah. I guess we got to talk about how she did. 
It really just rule number two, I think. Yeah. I mean, she was kind of suspicious, but that didn't really contribute to her death. No, not at all. Look where you're running. Yeah. That's really it. Gail and Jennifer find Dewey and Tyson. And they're like, oh, we'll be fine. He can't attack all of us at once. Ghostface walks in and punches Dewey in the face. I love this scene where, you know, we see Ghostface stalking around being a typical slasher villain for two movies and a, all of this movie beforehand. He just comes in and just cold cocks him. I love it. Yeah, no, this is, like, interesting because we have our four people in a group. Normally you're safe here. Fuck it. Ghostface walks in and just wrecks everyone's shit. <laughs> Props. Yeah. Major props to go, Roman. Go Roman. Uh, yeah, I really like this sequence, actually. So basically pure chaos. Both Dewey and Tyson end up getting slashed. Tyson stabbed pretty bad, actually. Yeah, and actually, so Tyson gets stabbed because he tackled Ghostface. Yeah, and they're trying to fight. They're cornered in the bedroom. Yep. No fault here. You're trying to fight. You gotta do what you do. Exactly. They should have gotten out of here a long time ago. In all honesty, they should not. Truth be told, they house. shouldn't have come to this house. Uh, and don't split up, and we'll go look around. And yeah. that's another thing for Angelina. Don't split up, gang. Yeah. Tyson ends up running out of the room, and Ghostface gives chase. And while all this chaos is happening, Jennifer accidentally hits like a secret passageway switch, and ends up behind Milton's closet. Just yep. Back secret passageway. Okay. Never explained. Never given any reasoning. Just like okay, he just has a secret passageway here. That's weird. It's an old house. Ooh. So Tyson tries to run, and as he's running, Ghostface pulls the carpet out from under him, and he lands on his neck, and it's horrible. I can't watch this part. It, hurt, it looks like it hurts so bad. Honestly, I wish Tyson would have died here. Dude, fucking brutal. This would have been such a cool kill if he would have died here. Yep, but he's got to live a little bit longer, and he's basically done. But Ghostface just tosses his ass out the window, and he dies. Yeah, pretty anticlimactic after... After he had a, after the only reason he's in this situation is because he played the hero and just tackled Ghostface, and then that really cool scene, yep. kind of anticlimactic to just get killed by getting chucked out a window. Yeah, I'll agree. For Tyson, really, his only violation was he went up, split up with them, the main group, and went to explore this spooky house. I don't really have anything else for him. Yeah, he he was certainly vigilant enough. Yeah, and, you know, he was cornered. He fought. He got hurt. He tried to get away. Respect for all that. He just shouldn't have been in this house. He should have gotten out a long time ago. Yeah. Bummer, dude. So Jennifer gets cornered in behind this closet, and she's trapped. She's got nowhere to go. She's got nothing to fight with. She's just kind of screwed. And Dewey takes his sweet-ass time, because he notices the mirrors are, are like, shaking. He's like, what the fuck? So he starts shooting the glass, but it's too late. Uh, Jennifer's been stabbed to death by Ghostface, and that's the end of Jennifer. I am very happy she's no longer in this movie. Now, I got a question. I don't... What, what do you think rules she violated here? Um... Because she split up from everybody else earlier, but that didn't really contribute to her death. No. You know, maybe get the fuck out of this house a long time ago. But apart yeah, from I, that, she got I trapped. I guess get out. Yeah. Get out. She broke. Because, um, I mean, she, so here's my problem. She spent the whole movie being a whiny bitch, mm-hmm. but she didn't break any rules. She's just not a good person. Yeah. She, she just shouldn't have been at this house. But she wanted to stick next to Gale for her own protection, and there's some some logic to that. A little bit. So, you know, surprisingly not much fault for Jennifer for being such a, I don't want to say useless, but like weird character. She is the least useless out of all the useless cast characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good way to put it. It's weird that she doesn't really have any real rule violations. Like a little bit of get out, but not much else. Yeah. Trapped in that cloner, she had like nothing. She was screwed. I don't know, man. Dewey and Gale split up again, very briefly, but they do. Just stop this, guys. <laughs> Stick together as a group. Ghostface grabs Gale, and they're fighting. Gale kicks a wall and throws the two of them down the stairs. Props. Risky move. 
but hey, you might as well. Rule 17 is never give up the next thing you try might work. Okay, yeah, Ghostface has you, could stab you at any second and you're dead. Fuck it. Throw yourself down the stairs with him. Yep. You know, you might break your neck, but hey, that'll probably you hurt less. You were going to get stabbed if you didn't do that, but so. That'll probably hurt less. Yeah. And, you know, maybe you'll break his neck. And it just knocks him out, and she's pretty much fine. So it worked out pretty well for her, but I love that move. Yeah, no, solid move from Gale. Dewey finds Tyson's body, and then he gets a call from Gale in the basement. And Dewey, you know, he does question whether or not it's the real Gale or not. Smart move on his end, given that he now knows about the machine. Yep, it's really the only relevancy that has anymore. Uh, I guess he does, he does use the mother voice one more time. Yep. Uh, but he ends up opening the door as Ghostface wakes back up. And he throws him, you know, he shoots, but he's out of ammo. Yep, he should have been counting his rounds. Yep. But I will give him credit. He has been basically having to babysit all of the cast and Gale. Yeah. He's got a lot on his mind. He does. <laughs> and he's going to have a major headache now because Ghostface throws a fucking knife at him, hits him in the head with the handle. That is some serious luck. That's pure luck. Honestly. 50 chance, 50% chance Dewey dies right there. Yeah. So he falls down the stairs, and then Gale, instead of trying to fight Ghostface, just like covers up like his body, like, oh, are you okay? And they're both captured now. Yeah. Stupid. So Sydney's at back at the police station, and Kincaid's got an extensive file on her. Kincaid's kind of suspicious now, to another red herring. She gets a phone call from Ghostface. He's got doing Gale. She can't tell the cops or he'll kill them. She's got to come up to the house in order to, to save them. What we don't really see here, or what we see a little bit, we see Sydney grab a gun. And it, you pointed out that she already had a gun and that this is a felony. <laughs> yeah, it's a felony. I, I, it is definitely a felony at the very least to steal an officer's gun. <laughs> yes. But this is my favorite move in the movie, probably. Sydney has two guns now. And what we don't see is she actually grabs a bulletproof vest as well. Yep. So she is fucking locked and loaded. She is. And in, in her defense, too, I forgot yeah. about what's about to come up when I pointed out that she had no use to steal a gun. I... Had completely forgotten about this scene. Yeah. It's a good scene. Because she arrives, and she sees Tyson's body. There's a metal detector. Ghostface calls, like, yo, you gotta use this on yourself. And she does, and there's a gun. So yeah, toss that shit in the pool. Now, come in the house. There, do, uh, Dewey and Gale are tied up inside. Come in the house. We'll, we'll, we'll sort all this out. And Sydney goes inside. Ghostface shows up. And she pulls out the second gun and fucking shoots him, like, six times. Yep, yeah, no, that that's great. That that was really smart planning from uh, from Sydney there. Unfortunately, Roman is also wearing a bulletproof vest. Yep, and he disappears. Kincaid shows up, and it's like oh, like oh no, is Kincaid the killer? And then Ghostface attacks again. Well, and what's interesting here too is that given screams, given how the movies always have two killers. It's interesting here because up until now, every scream movie has two killers. So. I was almost thinking the first time I watched this that Kincaid's the second killer. Sure. This isn't Ghostface we just watched get shot. This is Kincaid coming to kind of clean up what the masked Ghostface missed. And then turns out it's not. Nope. There's only one killer this time. That's the twist. Yep. It's like an anti-twist. Yeah. I don't think that really works, but whatever. Kincaid, they, you know, they put their guns down and then Ghostface attacks again and Kincaid ends up getting knocked out. So Sydney shoots the rest of her ammo, misses... And takes off running to lure Ghostface away. And we get a long kind of chase. Sydney ends up finding a secret passageway into the screening room. She finds it. And then she hears her mother's voice again. It's just the voice changer thing. Ghostface is in there. And he reveals that he is indeed Roman. I love this scene because up until now, Roman and Sydney have not actually crossed paths. So it's supposed to be a big reveal like in Scream 1 and Scream 2. And Sydney just looks confused. 
who the hell are you? <laughs> and he, he, he recognizes that, so he, I, he identifies himself. Oh, Roman, director. Yeah. And he's got a remote control so he can lock all the doors, so they're sealed into the screening room now. He reveals he had a bulletproof vest, and he kind of gives his backstories that they're actually uh, half-siblings. They have the same mom. And it's heavily implied that, uh, so Maureen had that night in the screening room, yeah. um, that at, at one of his, at one of the parties, um, so it's heavily implied that that's where Roman was conceived Yeah, and it kind of a Freddy Krueger scenario. You don't know who his dad is because she yeah. was just got train ran on her basically. Yeah. It's not great. And Maureen kind of just rejected him. Yep. Yeah. He, uh, he tracked Maureen down four years ago, which actually that was kind of surprising for me. I didn't realize these movies take place a year at a time. I knew there was only a year between Scream 1 and Scream 2. I could have sworn there was at least two or three years before, between 2 and 3. It feels like there is. But no, this is just a really quick succession, four years. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Roman calls out. He tracked Maureen down four years ago. She immediately rejected him. You know, she has her own life. She gave him up. She doesn't want anything to do with him. Yeah. I'm not justifying what Roman did. What Roman did. But as someone who uh, only knows one of their birth parents, I can kind of relate to him being upset at being rejected. Yeah, it sucks. And it, it's sad. It really is. It is. And that's why I feel bad for Roman. Yeah. Um, I do not condone his course of action here. But he's yeah. the most sympathetic killer. He is, without sure. a doubt. Yeah, and it isn't close. Roman uh, filmed all the uh, fair footage Marine was having and basically showed it to Billy and basically convinced Billy and Stu to go murder Maureen. And then they went and did their own thing, Scream 1. But he's like, yeah, I told them to do it. I directed them. I'm a director. <laughs> um, meanwhile, Dewey and Gale, they managed to get free. Kincaid gives Dewey a gun. And they're, they spend like the next ten minutes just trying to find their way into the room. It's almost comedic. Yeah, this is definitely more akin to Dewey from the first two movies than the new and improved Dewey we have in this movie. I could see this being parodied in, like, a scary movie. Like, just running around trying to get into a room for ten minutes. Definitely. So Roman ends up pulling John out of a closet who's all tied up. Basically, his plan is to frame Sydney for all the murders. She's, he used the voice yep. changer to basically, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to kill you, John, kind of thing. Yeah, kind of, uh, you know, the setup is that in his movie that he's directing right now, Sydney finds out about Maureen's uh, life before her and how Milton ruined her and turned her into, uh, in in Roman's words, the, the slut who yep. slept around. So Sydney blamed him for this, and that's why she killed him. So he's going to frame Sydney, and he's going to be the sole survivor. Yep. Classic stuff. Milton begs for his life, tells him he can get any project he wants. Script approval, final cut. Good try, but he's already got a final cut. And slits his throat. <laughs> So John doesn't do a goddamn thing this whole movie. Nope, but I got one rule violation for him. Rule number four, don't be a menace. His entire career was being a menace. Yeah, don't use position of power to rape people. Don't rape people. It's not cool. That's, that's fucked that's up. That's just life. That's just life. Yeah. So yeah, don't be a menace. You know, out of all of the people who get killed in the Scream series, John deserved it the most. Because he's yeah. a pile of shit. Billy definitely deserved it in Scream oh, 1. Oh, not counting the killers. Not counting the killers. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Victims. Out of all the victims, fuck John. Yeah. Piece of shit. Uh, rule number four, don't be a menace. So we get a big, long fight between Roman and Sydney, and it's a pretty good fight. They're, they're a pretty good match. But yeah, definitely. Roman does have the upper hand, and he knocks her down, and he stuns her, and he's like trying to strangle her, 
But then the power goes out. Dewey knocks the power out. Smart move on Dewey's end. And Kincaid manages to put the lock on the door, get inside, and distract Roman long enough to get knocked out again. Yep. Unfortunately, Sydney has a knife, and she's coming back to get Roman, but Roman has gotten Kincaid's, like, third gun. He's yeah. He's got a lot of he guns. He's a well-armed detective. Uh, good for him. Rule number five, lock and load. Yeah. But Roman shoots Sydney twice. Um, not quite a full double tab. you got to go for the headshot. Definitely. I mean, but in his defense, she does double over. Yes. You know, she, she doubles over after the first shot, which I love that, by the way. The, it Very rarely in this movie do, do the true physics of a bulletproof vest get brought in. With Sydney, they definitely do. Like, oh, yeah. it's not a catch-all, you're going to be fine. Like, you're getting the wind knocked out of you and probably breaking a rib. But yeah, but yeah Roman's got to fall. Rule number six, you double tap. you get, you got to finish her off. Yep. And in, in Roman's defense, though, he was going to. Yep. Uh, he went to lock the door. Mm. Uh, before finally getting the the final double tap, he was going to stab Sydney. Yep. And it's just bad luck that as soon as he turns around from locking the door, Sydney does her best Michael Myers impression and vanishes after being shot. Rule number two: constant vigilance, Roman. And uh, one other thing, uh, one other rule: rule number twenty-three: no one to play possum. Good on Sydney. She she knows when to play dead and just waits for a moment to just like whoop, disappear. So she plays dead for a, a few seconds, which is which is great. Yeah, dead, she plays dead long enough for Roman to feel confident that he can, uh, if she's not dead yet, he can get a very clean and easy kill. Yeah. So that he lets his guard down, turns his back, and that's when she moves to hide. Absolutely. Uh, she grabs an ice pick and manages to get the drop on Roman and stab him a couple of times with an ice pick. And she also reveals she had a bulletproof vest on. So Sydney stabs Roman again, and Dewey and Gale finally break in. It's all over. Oh, wait. Roman's somehow still alive. The supernatural killer. Oh, my God. And I actually love this scene. I know I just bitched about them uh, playing loose with the rules of bulletproof vests, but I love how Dewey is just unloading an entire clip and Roman's just shambling forward. Uh, Once again, kind of playing on those unstoppable forces that are Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers. Yeah, it's pretty great. And Dewey's a good shot. He is. He's a good shot. And this is an intentional choice. Yeah. to make fun of those, yes. basically. So I'm I'm more willing to forgive the inaccuracy of their use of bullet, bulletproof vests sure. for this bit. Yeah, no yeah. homage, kind of. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I'm fine with it. And then Sidiewicz is like, no, shoot him in the head. And he does. Takes the shot, gets him in the head, double taps, basically. This is like 12 times yep. tapping, but Roman is finally dead. Yep, right clean between the eyes. Dewey is a extraordinarily good shot he must have done some training between the movies because this is the most uh competent dewey has ever been yeah so for roman you know obviously don't be a menace you know if you're gonna go on a killing spree you're probably gonna get killed Um, don't be a menace double tap constant vigilance constant vigilance turns back at sydney he didn't finish her off when he had the chance yep classic killer mistakes yep and i mean he he was getting into it it's very clear that he's very much in this for the story. Yeah. And uh, that's actually why he came back with the knife, because he specifically called out the story is that he kills Sydney with his her own knife. Yeah. So he was kind of savoring his moment. This was his big finale. Go lock the doors to make sure no one interrupts it. Take your time getting back over. Just bad luck that Sydney's better than he is. He's making a movie. Yep. <laughs> Sydney's trying to live. Roman's trying to make a movie. Gotta keep your priorities in order. Final scene, we're back at Sydney's house. Do we... Gale and Kincaid are all there. Dewey proposes to Gale. Sydney has learned the wrong lesson because she doesn't reset her alarms 
and the door blows open mysteriously, and she doesn't, like, care. She just goes and watches a movie with everybody. No, it's great that you've invited your friends back in your life, Sydney, and, like, you know, you're, like, acting like a person again. But that doesn't mean you turn off the alarm system and don't check weird door openings, okay? It's not, that was the wrong lesson to learn here. Even beyond being the wrong lesson, it just pisses me off that the door gets blown open and she doesn't close it. Do like, you live in a barn? <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> That's what uh, Jordan shouted in the movie, basically. It, it is. That's accurate. So and It's very funny. Uh, but that's how Scream 3 ends. Not a great movie. I guess... I'm, uh, rating it on like a Rotten Tomatoes-esque scale, I would still consider this fresh. I w- sure. But it's like, it's a six for me. It's, yeah, exactly. This is not a good movie. or It's a, it's a fine movie. It's, it's not it's great. Okay. It's certainly not living up to the expectations set by screen Hell one no. and two. It is several steps down. Exactly. But this isn't a review pro- podcast. No. All right. So we only have one new rule, which is fun. It's been a couple episodes since we've had a new rule. But rule 31, put your ego aside. Jordan, you like that rule? I like that rule a lot. It's worthy inclusion because of Cotton. Um, not that if he would have put his ego aside, they w- he and his girlfriend would have survived, but they would have had a better chance. Sure. Not a guarantee, but it you know couldn't hurt. All right, so let's move on to the awards. First, we have the Randy Meeks Merit Badge, and this is the last time we'll actually see Randy Meeks. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. Unless something crazy happens, like a Scream 5 comes out, this is the end of Randy Meeks. It's also the third time Randy Meeks didn't win this badge. It's true. <laughs> I think this is a, there's a very obvious answer, but I hear you have a, a Dark Horse pick. I am less confident now that we've sat down and thoroughly analyzed every character's decision, but I want to make an argument for Dewey. Dewey is pretty good here. Dewey is very good here. Dewey makes a lot of mistakes towards the end slash middle. He kind of falls into old habits. But leading up to that and even during that, he's making a lot of good choices. He's, you know, he's protecting Sydney with selective information. He's locking and loading almost as quickly as possible. He's getting out when he needs to. He's locking himself in when he needs to. And he's doing, I, I specifically need to call this out, he's doing all of this while the cast characters are just running around clueless on what to do. He is taking control of the situation. And while I'm less confident after we analyzed it, I still want to throw his name in the ring here. Even if he doesn't win, I think he is definitely a most improved character. 100% most improved character. Because he has won the um, Night of the Living Club Award. Exactly. I, I, do, I do remember that. But I just, I think Dewey makes, he makes a lot of mistakes, but I think he also makes a lot of right choices, both yep. on and off camera, that lead to everyone surviving. And I mean, that's what this is about. It is yes. about surviving the horror movie. Yeah, no, he does a really good job all the way up to that the the third act at the house. Exactly. When he falls into his old habits. Um, Splits I know, up a lot. Exactly. And I know we've given the award to people who've died in the past. The difference being, I'm going to specifically reference Alice because that's the one we were, yep. the last one we did together. All the characters who have perfect rounds in this movie, they don't do anything. Yeah, that's true. They're just, they're useless and they're just kind of incidental cannon fodder kills. Yep. So while they play a perfect game, it's no it's like a two-second round. Yeah, so, it's no fun to give to somebody like that unless they did something truly amazing. Like, exactly. You know, a, a brief, like, one-minute, like, the neighbors in Halloween. They show up for a second, yep. do one incredibly <laughs> brilliant move, and win. So I don't, I don't want to give it to a character like that. Well, I will accept Dewey's honorable mention, you know, his nomination. I will give him an honorable mention for most improved. Right. 
I don't want to give it to anybody who's doing any of that splitting up in the mansion. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I really think it's got to go to Sydney. You know, she did have her one moment of constant vigilance where she got caught um, by the ghost face, ghost face pulling her out of the house like that. But everything else she does, she brings two guns to this showdown. She does that little trick where she's hiding in the set, in the fake room, and knocks ghost, basically throws Ghostface out of a building. She has a lot of cool scenes, and she makes a lot of good, uh, a lot of good decisions. Less bad decisions than Dewey. I am going to throw one more argument, though, that she spends the first half of the movie hiding, bearing no responsibility on the story, and then even once she's in. Uh, the story for the second act, she spends most of it at the police station. That's she is true. She's a very passive character until the third act, whereas Absolutely Dewey, true. everything he's doing is to contributing her. towards protection and survival of everybody, and he is killing it. So that is my final argument. It is your show. You make the final <laughs> call. I just need to defend Dewey there. That's fair. No, and I, I think he does a good job, but I, I, I love Sydney just kind of hiding out. It's like, no, I'm not in this movie. Nope. I'm not, damn it, I'm finally in this, fine, I'll be in this movie. But, and you're not wrong, you're not wrong. You know, there. having the alarm, you know, nobody knows where she is, I love all that stuff. You know, she's not perfect by any means, but I, I think she's great, and I think, I think she is worthy of the Randy Meeks merit badge. I, I agree, she is worthy, I just needed to make sure that after he won the Night of the yep. Living Pleb that Dewey got his... Redemption. His redemption here. Absolutely. Interesting fact, this is Sydney's second time winning the award. It is. And what's fun is we have now have two characters who have won this award twice. You've been here for both of those occasions. I have been. I made that connection right now. <laughs> yeah. So now we have two characters, uh, Sydney and Alice. I think Sydney's much more worthy overall than Alice. Uh, Friday the 13th Part 1 Alice was like... You're by, right. By no, default. you're right. Sydney in all three movies has been nothing but great. Yeah. Whereas Alice was only good in part two yeah she was trash in one but but she but boy was she good in two boy was she good in two but this is screen three yes (laughs) now moving on to the night of the living pleb award which is based off barbara from Night of the living dead who just sucks so this goes to the character who did the worst job at following the rules they're coming to get you barbara stop it you're ignorant they're coming for you barbara this is a tough one yeah i i was thinking both while we were watching and while we've been analyzing here, I've been trying to think of a nomination. I don't have anyone. Like, the only ones I have are kind of just default picks. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of characters who, like, make one mistake and die. So, who made multiple mistakes or the worst mistakes? I don't think anyone made multiple mistakes, honestly. Okay. I I guess I will throw Sarah in because of what I mentioned where she knows this office... And while, sure, she saw come, someone coming out the main door, okay, sure, you can't go out that way anymore, but you know where the windows are. You know if there's a back door. You know there are smarter options than hiding in the prop closet. You know, I, I kind of throw in Tom for going okay. back in the house for no good reason and blowing himself up. You know what? I agree. <laughs> that is just an overall dumb move. Yep. At least Sarah's had some logic behind it. Tom was just, oh, I want to see what the script is. Yeah, like there's the least amount of logic involved there, and I think that might be the dumbest move in the movie, besides all the splitting up at the haunted house at the end. Definitely. So, you know, no, no one too, too egregious. It was just like kind of a one and done for Tom, but it was yeah. a pretty bad one. So, yes, Tom is the knight of the living pleb, and he's not so living anymore. So... Moving on, Jordan, now you get to claim a spot on the wheel. So, I mentioned earlier, just to kind of casually, that Nightmare on Elm Street 
is my favorite slasher movie of all time. Yes. And you have the franchise on the re- on the wheel. Yes. Something the audience might not know, A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, is my least favorite horror movie of all time. <laughs> so I think in the interest of playing fair, I should do that one so that I can just bring some sense to you because you don't mind that movie. It's and okay. that's, no, it's, it's okay. not okay. All right. A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child has been officially claimed. All right. Well, now it's time to spin the wheel. Oh, boy. Leprechaun. Oh, God. Well, that's a movie. Oh, God. I own that movie, and that might be my least favorite movie. Why do you own that movie? Because they didn't have it on Netflix, and I was just like, I'll just buy it, and I'll watch it. Poor choice. It was a poor choice. I I despise this movie. The only reason it's on the wheel is because I live next to North Dakota, and it takes place in North Dakota. Fair enough. Still a bad choice. This episode, the Leprechaun episode will be coming to you live, not really live, but from North Dakota. We're going to record this in North Dakota. God damn it. (laughs) I hate everything. All right, well, thanks for spinning that. (laughs) Appreciate it. Uh, Jordan, you want to plug any social media? I mean, just like last time, I tweet at uh, Guy on Twitter. Um, I just I talk about movies, video games, some sports. By the time this episode airs, I'll have finished my Breaking Bad rewatch, so my tweets will be significantly less Breaking Bad related, if that bothers anybody. <laughs> okay, great. And you can follow us at How to Horror, where you can just see updates on the list and this is where the podcasts come out. We're also on Instagram at How to Survive a Horror Movie. Behind the scenes photos will be on there. I only have one on there, but I should put some more on. I'll do that. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Thank you for coming on, Jordan. Thank great you for guest having me. Is, great guest as always. Very knowledgeable. It's nice to have you know someone who has some knowledge about horror movies on the podcast. It's rare. I do what I can. <laughs> uh, this has been the How to Survive a Horror Movie podcast. Stay safe out there. Uh, uh, uh.